This podcast is brought to you by the AUA Office of Education and its chair, Dr. Victor Nitti. To provide any feedback, please email us at education at auanet.org. Hi, this is Vic Nitti, Chair of Education for the American Neurologic Association, and I'd like to welcome you to another AUA Office of Education podcast. Today's podcast is Transgender, What Every Urologist Needs to Know. And with me today, as my co-host, is Dr. Lee Zhao, Assistant Professor of Urology at the New York University Langone Medical Center in New York City. We're going to talk about transgender uh, today. Uh, We'll give a brief introduction, and then we're going to talk about some terminology We'll go through some treatment options for gender dysphoria and then talk about the male to female and female to male genital surgeries uh, and then uh, just some other uh, important facts uh, for the urologist to know when taking care of transgender patients. So without any further ado, I would like to welcome uh, Dr. Zhao to our podcast. Hi, Lee. Hi, Dr. Nitti. Thank you for having me. podcast. Well, it's it's a pleasure to have you. And I think it would be best to start off if we just talked a little bit about uh, some of the terms that are used in transgender. These are terms that uh, some of them are are new. um, And I think it's important that we're all speaking the same language. So uh, I thought it'd be good if you could just review for us the common terminology used uh, in transgender. Sure. Um, So I think the principal idea uh, is that there's a separation between gender and um, the biological sex of um, a person. And so, for example, um, the term gender identity uh, refers to a person's internal sense of being male or female. Uh, this isn't one that's necessarily visible to the to the naked eye. It's how the person feels about themselves. Um, and then the uh, gender expression is how a person um, expresses uh, that particular um, uh, uh, identity. Um, now, transgender refers a person where their gender identity or their expression Um, is different than the sex they had at birth. Um, Transgender replaces the term transsexual, um, which is a a term used previously um, to refer uh, to uh, patients um, with this particular issue with the idea that, you know, it's not that the sex is different, it's the gender is different. Um, Gender dysphoria uh, is the medical condition that's being treated. These are, um, it is the discomfort experienced by people whose innate gender identity, you know, their sense of being a man or a woman, conflicts with their visible sex characteristics. Um, one other thing I think is very important, sexual orientation, which is um, essentially which um, sex someone is um, attracted to, they may, um, uh, is different than gender identity. And so, for example, it's possible for someone to be transgender, for example, 
someone who is biologically male but believes um, but has an internal sense of being female, for them to be sexually attracted to both to either male or female uh, patients, um, you know, to male or female partners. So Lee, let's go over some of the uh, treatment options for gender dysphoria. You know, we think we always uh, tend to think in terms of the uh, the biggest things that can be done and and uh, different types of surgery. But um, take us through the different options for somebody uh, with gender dysphoria. Uh, sure. Uh, so surgery is the last step. I think the first thing uh, for someone who experiences gender dysphoria, which as we say, is the discomfort caused by a conflict between their innate gender identity and their visible sex characteristics is um, mental health. Um, so uh, they will see um, a psychotherapist, a psychiatrist, um, for um, as well as a, uh, perhaps a gender counselor for um, discussion of how um, to manage this particular problem. Um, sometimes they will go on to change their gender expression, which means they change the way they dress. Um, they may um, change the name that um, both um, socially and legally. Um, and then assuming that the diagnosis of gender dysphoria is made by a mental health professional, uh, the patient may go on hormonal therapy, um, uh, essentially, you know, cross-sex hormones, uh, you know, testosterone for trans men and estrogen for trans women. Um, and then after all of that, only then would uh, um, surgery be considered. And most surgery is actually not involving the general urinary tract. It's may involve uh, breast surgery for trans women, um, may involve um, what we call uh, top surgery for trans men, which is a, um, a mastectomy. Lee, do you have any sense about what percentage of, uh, of people that change their gender expression actually go on to um, non-genital surgery or for that matter, general, genital surgery? You know, I think one of the uh, issues with transgender care is that the data is very limited. Um, so, for example, um, based on Social Security uh, uh, data, there were about 135,000 gender changes um, uh, from 1936 to 2010. Um, so these are certainly changed your um, gender expression because they registered with the government that their name has changed. Now, how many of those went on to have surgery, uh, unfortunately, is um, not known. And, and that's one of the things that we as health professionals have to improve is to essentially create better research into this topic. But honestly, I, I don't have a great answer. I would suspect it's, it's not 100%. It's probably closer to... Um, uh, 50%. Well, you know, I, I know that a lot of urologists now as, uh, as transgender surgery has become more popular in the last several years, uh, more urologists and not necessarily those who, who do transgender surgery, but, uh, even those in general practice, uh, are, um, 
finding the need to care for uh, transgender patients. Um, and, and really, that's uh, sort of the essence of this podcast is how does the general urologist care for these patients? But I think in order for the general urologist to understand how to care for these patients, there has to be some knowledge of the actual surgery. So let's start with um, male to female genital surgery. Just give us a brief run through of, of what's involved uh, in the male to female surgery, where you start um, and where you finish. Sure. Um, so uh, surgery for um, uh, transgender patients, the correct, the term that uh, the, the community of uh, prof health professionals who uh, take care of these patients they, um, will use instead of sex reassignment surgery, we'll, we often use the term gender confirming surgery or um, gender affirming surgery, which is surgery that um, uh, affirms the patient's um, uh, body to their innate sense of um, self. Uh, and so, um, and, and this is now uh, covered by Medicare since 2014. So that's that's one other reason why we're seeing more and more of um, uh, patients uh, undergoing surgery. Obviously, uh, once something is covered by Medicare, insurance typically follows. So probably the most common operation is um, orchiectomy, um, and uh, uh, that's one um, surgery that all urologists are familiar with. But uh, but the bilateral orchiectomy for uh, trans women uh, is slightly different than one would perform for cancer. Uh, typically, a vertical midline incision is made, um, and uh, the uh, testicles are... Uh, freed and, and uh, they're ligated um, not quite as high as uh, one would for uh, oncology. The reason a vertical uh, midline incision is made is that um, in preparation for uh, potential uh, additional surgery, one does not want to compromise the, the blood supply uh, of the uh, scrotum um, because that uh, skin may be used for vaginoplasty. Lee, is, is orchiectomy usually done as a separate procedure or is it done at the uh, sort of in a single stage? It depends a little bit on the patient's um, uh, wants and, and, and desires regarding their um, transition. Um, so uh, a vaginoplasty, which is the, the next operation, uh, could certainly perform, be performed at, along with an orchiectomy. But many patients feel um, like they're not quite ready for um, such an extensive procedure and will undergo go the orchiectomy first. Um, so tell us a little bit about uh, how uh, uh, vagina is created. Sure. Um, there's a, a couple of different techniques. The most common uh, technique is what we call a penile inversion. Um, vaginoplasty. That, that is where uh, the penis is freed from uh, um, the penile skin, the, the, um, the urethra, the uh, corpora cavernosum, the glands were, were, are all freed from a tube of skin. The skin is 
pushed down and um, a incision in the perineum is created um, uh, and dissection is performed between the prostate and the rectum. Um, the penile skin, and, and most oftentimes the penile skin is insufficient, um, so uh, surgeons will often add a skin graft uh, in addition to this. It's then pushed into the, the cavity that is created um, between the prostate and rectum. Um, the corporate cavernosum are re removed. The um, urethra is um, uh, repurposed to form the um, uh, anterior vaginal wall. Um, and the glands, penis, and the neurovascular bundle are transformed into a neoclitoris. So a couple of questions. First of all, how difficult is it to make that plane to allow for uh, sufficient vaginal length? Yeah, you know, I, I think this is um, uh, a uh, plane that may be familiar to uh, urologists who have done... Uh, perineal prostatectomy, um, or uh, you know, for me as a uh, reconstructive urologist, you know, repair of rectal urethral fistula, you know, it's essentially the, the, the same plane. One goes just above the perineal body um, and makes an incision um, underneath the prostate. Uh, I would say, uh, you know, one is millimeters away from uh, potentially injury to the rectum and um, the prostatic urethra. So uh, it, it is um, probably the, uh, the part of operation has the uh, steepest learning curve. Do you, do you always do that uh, perineally or might there be a reason to uh, go abdominally to get perhaps a better plane or, or more length? Yeah, certainly um, one uh, can approach both way. I would say um, uh, most surgeons uh, uh, in practice will um, uh, perform this um, through the perineal approach. Uh, in my own practice at NYU, um, especially for patients who have had uh, prostatitis or previous um, surgery in that plane, uh, we'll actually go transabdominally using the, uh, the robot. Um, I think that's a, a very nice option for um, deep pelvic dissection because we're able to identify that plane uh, essentially in an antegrade fashion uh, from above and, and really keeps um, maintaining safety uh, away from the uh, bladder and rectum. All right. Now let's talk a little bit about complications. These are things that uh, the general urologist might see and uh, uh, might need to take care of uh, himself or herself uh, or possibly refer it. But what are the common complications um, of vaginoplasty that, uh, that you see or that uh, people may see uh, out in general practice? Sure. Uh, so uh, as with any uh, surgery involving um, this much um, soft tissue dissection, uh, infection or bleeding uh, are, are the common early issues. Um, those probably will not present to a to urologist. I, I would say later on, um, one would see uh, there may be tissue necrosis of the neoclitoris. So again, that is just the glands, penis that's been um, detached from the corporate cavernosa. Um, uh, the there may be fistulas that form. Um, we, we talked about how uh, 
the dissection between the prostate rectum being uh, um, somewhat challenging. And so there may be fistula between the bladder and the neovagina or uh, uh, rectal neovagina fistulas. I've, I've seen uh, both um, in my own practice uh, being referred from other surgeons. Um, urethral stenosis is something that can occur. Um, the urethra is uh, um, opened and, and inset into the uh, neovagina. That occurs probably um, 1 to 5% of the time. Um, and um, probably the most common, honestly, is insufficient vaginal depth. Um, you know, patients who undergo the penile inversion technique have to dilate uh, to maintain the space of the neovagina. And um, uh, oftentimes, both as a combination of pain or, or scar tissue, uh, they will have inadequate whips and depth. It's, it's actually a reason for that patients want to go a second, um, different vaginal technique uh, use, uh, using uh, intestine um, to augment the vaginal depth. So that, that's most of the complications we see for vaginoplasty. Um, and, and those are some of the things that may present a general urologist. So, Lee, I would imagine that the most uh, common urgent or emergent thing that um, a urologist might see would be urinary retention um, caused by uh, urethral stenosis. What is the best way to deal with this? Is, is a dilation and catheter okay? Should uh, the urologist stay away from that, uh, put in a suprapubic tube? Uh, how do you advise treating that? Sure. Um, I think um, if a trans woman after uh, vaginal plastic surgery uh, is in urinary retention, um, I think uh, identifying the urethral meatus performing a dilation is appropriate. Um, the urethral um, meatus is uh, uh, distal to um, the uh, external urinary sphincter. Um, usually there's a, a couple centimeters, and so um, performing a dilation should should not have any problems. Uh, sometimes um, the patient um, uh, has a meatus that cannot be identified. And, and of course, if, if one can't find the, the opening uh, because of extensive stenosis, um, a suprapubic tube would be indicated. Now, for long-term management, do most of those patients require meatoplasty or is simple dilation plus minus intermittent catheterization um, good enough? You know, I, I think um, it um, becomes very similar to any other urethral stricture. Um, in the uh, initial setting of diagnosis, um, uh, performing a dilation would be uh, appropriate. I think long-term, um, most patients are, are um, don't find that uh, chronic catheterization, uh, you know, is uh, something that they want to do. And, and the repair of this is actually fairly simple. Um, uh, uh, usually the stenosis is not very long and one could uh, perform a meatoplasty by making a um, incision on the ventral acid of the urethra. Now, one will have to be um, careful that uh, there is space between um, the meatus and the external sphincter well, um, when doing that. Um, uh, so, because uh, one does not want to you know, cut into the sphincter if there's an issue.
Right. Although I would imagine if the prostate is intact, that gives you a little bit of uh, a little bit of leeway. Um, the next thing uh, I'd like to talk, I'd like you to talk about, uh, is the female to male surgery, which uh, I guess is a little bit more complex in that it needs to be done in multiple stages. So take us through that. Sure. Yeah, the, the female to male uh, genital surgery is um, um, uh, is certainly more complex than male to female. Um, most patients will undergo uh, hysterectomy and uh, oophorectomy uh, in a uh, separate stage. Um, uh, that is most often performed uh, laparoscopically. Um, and then, you know, for the goals of standing to urinate and to, to have a phallus, there's, there's two operations that could be done. One is an operation known as a metoidoplasty. Uh, this is where the clitoris, which has typically been lengthened um, by uh, testosterone, um, the, the clitoris is freed from uh, its surrounding uh, skin and the urethra is uh, lengthened using um, flaps of anterior vagina, uh, labia, um, and labia minora. Sometimes um, a graft um, of uh, vaginal um, epithelium or, or buccal mucosa uh, may be placed lengthening it. Um, it's really analogous to a uh, proximal hypospadias repair. Um, but that only provides a phallus of um, two to five centimeters or so. Um, patients uh, may or may not be able to stand to urinate after this operation, depending on their body happiness. Um, I find that uh, many more patients are uh, interested in undergoing phalloplasty, which is a creation of a neophallus um, from uh, a donor site. Um, it may be the, uh, the forearm based off the, the radial artery. It may be the uh, anterior lateral thigh or um, the uh, latissimus dorsi, um, depending on the, the anatomy of the, uh, the donor site. Um, the phalloplasty is, is one that um, can be performed in um, uh, one operation or uh, in uh, stages. Um, you know, that operation itself is one that uh, is, has a fair number of, of urologic complications. We have to recall that uh, the urethra is not, um, uh, the difference between the female and male urethra is not just the addition of a phallus. Um, the bulbar urethra uh, needs to be um, recreated. And so um, surgeons for phalloplasty will um, frequently perform a vaginectomy, um, will uh, lengthen the urethra from uh, its native um, opening out towards the pubic symphysis. Um, and uh, that will require, um, like for metoidoplasty, flaps of anterior vagina and, and labial um, menorah. Um, and then from that point, uh, the uh, phallic urethra um, or penile urethra is created using um, uh, from the uh, forearm uh, flap or from the anterior lateral thigh. Um, so for all this reconstructive surgery, as you can imagine, there's many, many complications that could uh, that could occur. 
what do you typically use to create the uh, the phallic urethra? So that could be done um, in a couple different techniques. Um, for um, probably the most common uh, use is the uh, radial forearm free flap. Um, so that is a, a segment of um, uh, skin um, and subcutaneous tissue from the, the forearm um, that is transferred um, um, to the uh, um, area of the uh, pubic symphysis to create the phallus. And the technique is what is called a tube inside a tube. And so a small uh, segment of skin is rolled into the tube to make the uh, neo-urethra. And then subsequent that, the rest of the forearm skins rolled around that tube uh, to create the phallus. I would imagine that there are many complications related to, or many possible complications related to bladder emptying, um, post void dribbling, strictures, uh, et cetera. Um, also, I would imagine that uh, in most cases, uh, in, a, in a neophallus, um, you would use uh, some sort of a prosthetic device um, as well. So tell us a little bit about that. Sure. Um, so, uh, as you can imagine from an operation that creates, uh, essentially the, um, uh, urethra from the, um, uh, native female urethra all the way out to the tip of the phallus, um, along all these suture lines, there can be, uh, many, uh, fistula, uh, yin, uh, um, the published literature, the rate of fistula formation is anywhere between uh, 20 to 80 percent. Um, and along with the fistula, one can get stenosis or stricture of the urethra. Um, oftentimes the stricture and the fistula will go together. A uh, patient may get a fistula proximal to a distal stricture. Um, the most common site of the stricture is actually the anastomosis between the neophallus and the um, the new bulbar urethra, um, and sometimes the uh, urethra that's been uh, created from these labia, um, menorah flaps, and, and intervaginal uh, flaps will balloon out, and urine will actually collect inside a cavity, uh, such that the patient. Um, uh, when they void, they will have post-void dribbling. And, and, you know, it may be thought of as incontinence in, in the sense that um, uh, they will store urine in this cavity. And as they move around, urine will be capped. Um, you mentioned uh, penile prosthesis. Uh, you know, that's something that's typically performed um, six months um, uh, to a year um, after the phalloplasty. Uh, the reason for that is that one wants all the um, uh, urethra to heal for, for any complications to, to present themselves and for the um, phallus to regain some sensation um, such that the, if the implant is placed, there'll be a lower chance of erosion uh, through the neophallus. What type of implant do you commonly use? So... This really depends on uh, the patient's anatomy and preferences. Um, uh, both the uh, malleable and the um, 
uh, three-piece inflatable uh, prostheses are used. Um, we'll have to be cognizant that uh, the pump um, for the inflatable prosthesis has to be placed inside a neoscrotum. And the neoscrotum is made from uh, labia majora, uh, and so there may be an inadequate space um, uh, for that. Um, infection rates um, are much higher for um, uh, trans men um, than for um, uh, uh, the standard um, uh, infection rates for penile prosthesis. Um, and so um, given that, uh, I think the uh, Malibu implant certainly has a role because there's just less prosthetic uh, device um, for that. Do you usually use one or two cylinders or does it depend? It really depends on the size of the neophallus. Um, I think one potential complication with using two cylinders is that there's no uh, corpora, um, there's no native corpora cavernosum to, to, uh, for which to place the cylinders. And so if you have um, uh, two cylinders, sometimes they may uh, twist and cross. Although, you know, two cylinders w would provide more rigidity than one, and so it's, it's really a matter of um, the patient's anatomy. So, Lee, the last thing I'd like you to talk about is general follow-up for these patients. And, you know, what are some of the things that uh, urologists need to uh, be aware of in patients just for general urologic health? Um, you know, risks of malignancy and just urinary symptoms and, and such. Um, what do we need to know about that? Sure, and, and, and this is a uh, area of, uh, of uh, active research as well. Also, so one one um, issue is uh, for male to female patients, um, they still have a prostate, and so they would be um, potentially be at risk for prostate cancer. Um, now, um, uh, the uh, hormonal therapy um, should uh, reduce the risk of prostate cancer, although one, one could um, uh, imagine that uh, if someone's been on uh, estrogen for um, a long duration, potentially that would select for more aggressive forms of prostate cancer if uh, they were to have it. Um, uh, I don't want to um, get into the controversy regarding prostate cancer screening, but I would say if one was the screen for prostate cancer um, for um, trans women, um, uh, a digital rectal exam would not be useful if they've had a, a vaginal plasty because the prostate would be anterior to the neovagina and it would really be a, a digital neovaginal exam. How about malignancy risks for uh, female to male patients? So um, female patients um, uh, who transition to male uh, may still be at risk for breast cancer if um, not all the breast tissue is removed um, at the time of the, uh, the mastectomy. Um, uh, they may be at risk for that. Um, they are also at potentially at risk for um, endometrial cervical malignancy. 
uh, I would say one thing that's that's very important is uh, if a um, female to male patient undergoes a phalloplasty, um, the cervix must be removed because um, otherwise there's essentially no way to survey the, the cervix. Um, and uh, um, so uh, that's one thing that's done towards prevention um, of that. And, and But not every patient may, may uh, have undergone a hysterectomy where the cervix is completely removed. Yeah, I mean, I, I would imagine if a patient had an issue with an ovarian fallopian tube uterus or cervix, uh, it would not be a pleasant thing to have to treat in the face of all that reconstruction. Um, last thing, Lee, I want you to just mention is what about urinary symptoms? Do the uh, male to females experience lower urinary tract symptoms secondary to BPH or does hormonal therapy pretty much uh, eliminate that? Um, you know, not every um, patient transitions at the same time. And so um, uh, I would imagine that a young patient who's been on um, hormones for, for a long time when, when they transitioned, um, probably there's not much prostatic development, but we are seeing patients who transition at a much older stage. And so um, they will have um, a prostatic hyperplasia just as um, all male patients can, can experience. Um, and um, uh, so we do see lower urinary tract symptoms in these patients. Um, one thing I, I think uh, that's important to know for um, uh, the general urologist is that um, if one was to do um, some kind of surgical intervention for BPH in a trans woman who's had a vaginal plasty, um, I think it's important to uh, make a clear assessment of the function of the external urinary sphincter um, because uh, and, and I've, I've had the uh, unfortunate experience of seeing this, is that if, if one does a TERP on someone who's had a neovagina uh, created and the um, vaginoplasty affected the external sphincter, um, the patient may be incontinent. And that particular incontinence would be very, very difficult to treat as there's essentially no bulbar urethra from which to put a sphincter or a, or a sling. Well, Lee, that was great. I really want to I want to thank you for uh, taking the time to uh, to do this podcast and uh, inform uh, our audience uh, really quite extensively about uh, transgender and what urologists need to know. Uh, I want to thank the audience for listening. And I also want to remind you that uh, if you need more information or if you'd like to hear some of our other uh, podcasts, please visit www.auanet.org slash university. Uh, thank you very much.